Welcome back to Probably About Politics. This episode, Slovenia, and a look back at what happened in Costa Rica and how wrong we were. <laughs> yes, that's probably a good idea. It's a classic Probably About Politics double header. Yeah. I mean, people think that we always get it right, and it's important to own up that sometimes, you know, we make predictions and they are wrong. But speaking of getting things right, uh, on a previous uh classic double header back in 2016 we covered both togo and benin kaylee and this is important because today the world country was benin and oh nice benin is a go-to country for me in that game when i'm like that looks like somewhere in northeast africa <laughs> <laughs> fair enough it's a pretty distinct uh shape though as a country yeah. like it it's hard to mix it up with other. Yeah, but like if I just want to pick a country there that like kind of situates me, like get you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm like Benin. And then if I'm close, I'm like, ah, Sierra Leone. And then. <laughs> <laughs> and then we go from there. All right, look, uh, sounds good. <laughs> I know that I, I I don't want to get in trouble for for choosing Israel all the time, but I kind of like those you know skinny countries. I guess maybe I'll go with Chile as well um, yeah. as my first world will guess. But okay, we're gonna try and keep this short today, as I say mm-hmm. at the beginning of every episode. Um, and I think by this by like most podcasts, you know, forty five minutes is pretty short to be honest. Yeah, I mean, we could be doing like two hours and well, and mostly bants. Listen, I got a lot of Slovenia facts, so <laughs> we could get we could we could go for two hours if you want to go for two hours. But uh, I don't have two hours, so let's just do a quick recap of what happened in Costa Rica. All right, yeah. So we covered Costa Rica a few weeks ago, or not a few weeks ago, a couple of months ago now. Uh, time, what is it? Um, and they have a new president. They they had their presidential runoff race, which we said would come up, um, and they ended up they ended up with sort of two uh, main candidates, uh, which is how I guess a runoff race, <laughs> race works. Ideally, just two, but you know. <laughs> That's why and, and, we talk about things that happen that are different. And if you, if you go back and listen to that, uh, you'll know that uh, Ferrer was uh, sort of one of the lead candidates that was expected to make through. He's a previous presidential candidate. He did make it through. And then it was him versus uh, a candidate who we didn't talk very much about, uh, who is an econ- economist and nobody really saw coming, uh, Rodrigo Chavez. Um, and he's he was sort of seen as a... A central but probably a farther right than uh, <laughs> right candidate um, overall um, and he managed to win in the end uh, largely in what is seen and I think we talked about this in the last episode about uh, countries who had undesirable choices in largely what is seen as uh, two bad options like that ne- the voters wanted neither of these people they'd both had uh, uh, scandals um, and th- that's reflected in the voter turnout. Uh, 42% of voters did not participate in this election, which is, is quite a low turnout for Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and at the moment, uh, Chavez is campaign is, uh, is under investigation, uh, for allegedly running an illegal parallel financing structure. Um, uh, and he's also, uh, been, he, he used to be, uh, top, uh, economist at the world bank 
mm-hmm. until he was dismissed uh, for multiple allegations of sexual harassment. Um, and, uh, and the World Bank is now reviewing how they handled that because I think they, they dismissed it, uh, dismissed him not for officially for sexual harassment, um, but for like a lesser charge, but they're now reviewing to say that that wasn't, uh, the appropriate approach that they should have taken. And so now he is, you know, facing the scrutiny of a sexual harassment investigation over his employment and time at the World Bank. Right. Um, sort of an interesting quote that I saw was, for a lot of people, it's embarrassing to say that they voted for one or the other, and many prefer to say that they didn't vote for either, mm. <laughs> uh, to sort of explain the, the candidate turnout. Um, but right. yes. That seems like a thing that happens, eh? Is that these people become president, and then all of a sudden, it brings a bright spotlight upon them and their past. Uh, mm-hmm. Which seems like I don't know if you had if you've done some bad things. I guess I don't know. It's just like, <laughs> don't tr- like try and lay low or something. I mean, it, I guess it's good that yeah. it comes to light, right? But I guess it's also bad that these people get power. But it just seems so odd to seek these I, <laughs> this yeah. limelight, right? I don't want to like armchair psychologists, people who choose to run for leadership. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's a certain level of uh, confidence in oneself. Oh. Um, and perhaps a lack of awareness that, that somebody might be offended by the fact that you are a serial sexual harasser uh, in the workplace. You know what? To plug another podcast, there was just an episode of Sean Carroll's podcast where he interviews a guy who just wrote a book about like narcissism within our like political leaders mm. and how like how non-representative the people who run for office are of the general public. And it's like just wild. It's like these people who run for office are just like morally ambiguous and just like just obsessed with like getting power, even though it's like Mm -hmm. if this person gets power, his past will come back and it will be probably worse for him. But then he Mm -hmm. sees it as the only way to, you know, get around that is to just get more power. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. What a wild logic. Anyway, uh, that was, yeah, it was, it was a good episode. It seems like an interesting book. Maybe we'll link it in the uh, in the newsletter, which you can uh, sign up for by sending us an email at probablyaboutpolitics at gmail.com or going on our Wix site, uh, if you search Probably About Politics, uh, and signing up to our newsletter there, uh, you could get that book wreck. Anyway, yeah. that's Costa Rica. yeah uh i guess it's it's worth watching there's sort of been some flags that uh chavez is is going to be detrimental to human rights in costa rica Mm -hmm. um he's signed an agreement uh or statement of intent that all the the ultra conservative evangelical pastors um put together for him where he committed to before god removing gender ideology from public education um, and reviewing all current regulations on abortions and IVF fertility treatments, and then promise to not allow any relaxation on abortion laws or euthanasia laws. So, so there's sort of a, 
and and he's also going to give all religious leaders this one that uh, seemed uh, particularly interesting to me religious leaders a veto on candidates for posts in the ministries of health education and foreign affairs Whoa. um so i mean yeah arguably there was a certain awareness amongst the voters about this position that he had but it is um quite the handing of power to religious re- leaders in the country um for sure with a low wow. voter turnout yeah wow okay Thank you for the update, and we'll try and do better in the future to read the room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems like multiple people were surprised, uh, mm-hmm. and so we weren't the only ones who got it wrong. Right. So I guess we have that. Um, <laughs> okay. Kelly, do you want to hear about Slovenia? Uh, yeah, for sure. Do you want me to tell you some things about Slovenia that you may probably knew, but definitely one yeah. or two that you didn't know? I'm pretty sure, like, because I don't know if you noticed this, but in reading the all the news articles about Slovenia, it was like, normally people do not think about Slovenia. So I <laughs> yeah. bet a lot of people do not know <laughs> these facts. <laughs> not to be confused with Slovakia. Uh, yes. Okay. So, Slovenia, where are we in the world, right? If you know where mm-hmm. Italy is, I think people know where Italy is. That's kind of like a, you're playing world, right? Italy, you know where that is. It's got a shape that you know. It's centrally located. I mean, you look at a map, it's normally right in the middle of the map, basically, right? It's there, <laughs> yeah. eye level on the wall. Okay, that's Italy. Um, like northern Italy, just to the right of that on the map, you know, that's Slovenia, that little like kind of circle looking guy. And then Austria, Croatia, Hungary, kind of all bordering, all bordering Slovenia. Small country, probably why you don't hear about it. Only 2 million people. Interestingly, Kaylee, 40 to 60 wolves in Slovenia, as well as those 2 million people, mm-hmm. and about 450 brown bears. <laughs> cool. I mean, uh, you know, good to keep track of them, I guess. This was, this Are they filling like, out the census? <laughs> I, I don't know. It's like this was on the uh, Wikipedia like biodiversity section of Slovenia. It was just like really like very accurate counts of the numbers <laughs> <laughs> wolves and brown bears and importantly for what happens in science news later on or space news i should more accurately say um is that there's over 2400 species of fungi in slovenia well uh, i guess i gotta go as a lover of fungi i should go hmm. to slovenia. <laughs> <laughs> uh okay yeah so th- those are some facts about slovenia we know where we are we know the predators that are there but now we're going to learn about some more. Um, mm-hmm. So <laughs> uh, in Slovenia, they have a parliamentary <laughs> democracy. When I was first reading about this, I read it as paramilitary democracy. I <laughs> 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 hadn't heard of that before. Uh, but no, parliamentary democracy, pretty standard stuff. They got a president elected for five years, right? This election is for the National Assembly, the parliament, um, they have, which has a prime minister. There's also 90 seats that are up for election, 88 by proportional representation, and two for minorities for Italians and Hungarians, which I thought was interesting. Mm. Um, but is pretty common, actually, in a lot of countries, but something that we don't do in Canada. Anyway, because mm-hmm. we'd have to have proportional representation, but whatever. <laughs> um, Thumbs up for proportional representation. Right. Okay. So now I'm just going to give... And Kaylee, please feel free to interrupt at any moment of this quick rundown of who the current prime minister is and how we got here. Okay. All right. 
So the current prime minister is a guy named Yanez Yansha. Mm-hmm. Okay. He is the only member of parliament who has been elected in every election since Slovenian independence in 1991. Yes. He has also previously been the prime minister of Slovenia two separate times, once in 2004 until 2008, and once again in 2012 until 2013. Now, in 2013, uh, after a non-confidence vote, he was no longer prime minister and sentenced to two years in prison for corruption charges. (laughs) (laughs) And has has since um, been called the Slovenian Trump by Der Spiegel. Um, So this is is current PM Janez Jansha. Anything to add or do you want me to go on about second place candidate Marin Saric? Yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, he's... And until he became prime minister, he'd also been sort of being blocked from being prime minister in in recent years um, mm-hmm. by the left. Uh, if yes. they could hold the coalition together, they they would have kept him out longer, but they they couldn't do that until uh, in, in 2018, 2019, I yes. believe. Yeah. So this is where we are. Okay. So Yanis Yancha is the leader of the Slovenian Democratic Party which is abbreviated to SDS because for some reason we can never get them to just have the same letters in the acronym <laughs> starting of the word. But anyway, uh, so for those of you who every once in a while actually do pay attention to Slovenian politics, you'll think, wait, Yenis Jancha's prime minister of Slovenia? When I last checked the 2018 Slovenian election, the man who won that post and became the prime minister was a guy named Marin Šarić. What happened to him? Well, mm. here's what happened to him. In 2018, Marin Šarić's party won 12.6% of the vote. And hilariously, Marin Šarić's party is called the List of Marin Šarić, which I love. Yeah. <laughs> it took me a long time to figure that out cuz it's like right? what? Yeah, so that which is abbreviated LMS, which is actually it's, it's fantastic. It's like who's the leader? Marin Šarić. What's the party? List of Marin Šarić. Yeah. Okay, good. He was a he's a comedian and actor too as well, right? Yeah. Just like Zelensky. Oh, yeah, yeah. I wonder if he'll come up today. (laughs) I wonder if he'll come up. Okay, so second place candidate Marin Sherich was prime minister after the 2018 election. And as Kaylee, you said, right, all these people have been trying to keep Yanez Yansha from becoming prime minister. So after that 2018 election, there's who's going to be prime minister? We got to figure out a coalition and everything, right? Um, So the list of Marin Sherich created a five-party coalition with the Social Democrats, which is different from the Slovenian Democratic Party, <laughs> importantly, <laughs> the Social Democrats, the Modern Center Party, and another banger name, the Party of Alenka <laughs> Bratisek, <laughs> which is led by Alenka Bratisek, uh, yeah. <laughs> and the Democratic Party of Pensioners of Slovenia. Um, mm-hmm. And the Democratic Party of Pensioners in Slovenia Man, they'll do anything to get power because in 2020, after these disagreements around new healthcare legislation, right, when Marin Sherich resigns in 2020 amid amid the COVID-19 pandemic, right, mm-hmm. then this left the door open and those pensioners always ready to grab power at any moment they can. <laughs> <laughs> and this is when Yanis Yancha, the current prime minister, and remember again, the prime minister in 2004, 2008, and the prime minister in 2012, grabs power. In, in a last-ditch effort uh, where he forms a coalition between the Slovenian Democratic Party, the modern center party, um, 
interestingly, which was also in the coalition with Myron Church, uh, the New Slovenia Party, and again, those dastardly Democratic Party of pensioners of Slovenia, always trying to get in there. So Can't this, is where, this is where we are now, is this coalition, Yanis Jansha, and where do we go from here? Yeah, so I think, and, and to throw in, like, I think if you're not, as uh, Alex pointed out, if you're not somebody who is really up to date in Slovenian politics or really understanding it geopolitically, Slovenia is kind of an interesting country. Like, I, I, they are always saying, you might not be thinking about us, but they are like sort of this post-communist country in that region of the world that is sort of split between European and Russian or, or post-Soviet influence, um, and and historically have been considered sort of this poster child of like a post-communist transition. They've sort of rapidly taken on Western political ideas and economic structures, um, but there is sort of that existing tension of of the transition there, and and I think uh, the political scene of of, of <laughs> sort of some of the things that Yansa uh, Yansa embodies is is sort of part of that. Um, a country that is ultimately was not that long ago um, under a communist ruler rule in the in the Soviet is kind of negotiating its influence um, in the in the EU um, and how it, it it's situated there. So I think that that's that's worth uh, thinking about when we're considering where uh, Slovenia is currently, which and and why it is actually really politic geopolitically interesting and Europe is really watching this election is that it is sort of one of those countries that um, in this current Ukrainian crisis, it sort of revealed how precarious that divide between Europe and Russia is at the moment for, for a mm-hmm. number of countries that are kind of on the border. Especially somebody like Yancha, who's been an MP, yeah. like I said, since 1991, like he's really yes. a product of a different time. Um, yeah. And like recently said something about calling like European ideals, like imaginary or something is what he said like i don't remember the exact words but it was like just like a weird thing to say um and now like after calling like european ideals imaginary now like trying to like be the broker of like ukraine uh going to like visit them uh back in mid-march and everything but i'll let you yeah continue i mean that's i think that's really the the interesting tension that that exists (laughs) there's a few Mm -hmm. we're gonna have to go over a few things with where he is positioned but yeah in europe he is until very recently and probably still is considered to be like a thorn in the side of the eu like they're trying to do (laughs) things uh but he is he is very adamant that sort of western european values should not be shoved down the throats of of these of all the countries um, and and that he got into a fight with uh, the Dutch Dutch prime minister over uh, uh, over saying that that European countries should have to follow the rule of law in Europe, like the European Union's rule of mm-hmm. law um, <laughs> around issues of uh, LGBTQ plus rights, um, and 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 sort of pushing against that, really aligning himself with uh, with uh, Poland and Hungary's leaders in that way and also uh, pushing back on the EU's sort of efforts to encourage freedom of the press uh, because he has been sort of notably um, favoring uh, television or, or news organizations that mm-hmm. uh, are from Hungary and are sort of leaning towards Russian 
uh, notable Russian propaganda, um, yeah. while while removing funding from state institute state state funded uh, uh, broadcasters and and news organizations, uh, mm-hmm. which is something that the EU would like to really be protecting and has been pushing him on, um, and and yeah, the the uh, your, uh, European values remark no, is is also particularly interesting because uh, Slovenia was president of the European yeah. Union at that time. So really representing the face and the leadership of it while simultaneously <laughs> being very critical. And then at the same time, he is also like, he's extremely critical, but as a platform issue and uh, consistently throughout his leadership, he has been advocating for the it, the rapid inclusion of Ukraine in the EU, as well as um, expanded inclusion, like, a return to the the EU's sort of initial, like when it was formed, it was supposed to be very expansive, looking to expand and incorporate further countries, is really mm-hmm. laid off of that in in the last ten to fifteen years. It has has not new countries do not join the EU very often, mm-hmm. and he's really pushing for that, which is sort of an interesting interesting mix of stances that that uh, Slovenia's prime minister has taken on the issues of Europe. So, like. Is that, it seems like if you are trying to say that, like, it doesn't seem necessarily that those two ideas are at odds with each other, right? Like, he can be very critical of the European Union and think that he's not a big fan of these Western ideals. And then, so it would kind of make sense that he's into European Union expansion and allowing more countries that don't necessarily follow those same ideals, like potentially Ukraine at the time that he was making these remarks, right? Yeah, I, I think there's definitely that is a reasonable point. I think that probably that is you could say that that is what he's looking to is that if he expands it with more countries who agree with his political stances, that will sway the European Union in general, mm-hmm. how they how they vote and think about things in general. Uh, but you know, I think additionally, like it is sort of Slovenia. I think thinks of itself again as you're saying as this country who has made that transition and is leaning towards Western ideals. So there is sort mm-hmm. of I think they, as a country, sort of exist in that contradiction of like somewhere in the middle of West, of this sort of not that it is as simple as Western or Eastern like political economic structures, but um, of of being European versus post Soviet, and and so I think that he's walking a bit of a line there as well. Mm-hmm. You think that he would just leave and start his own union? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of other countries that agree with him. <laughs> I, I doubt it. I, say. <laughs> I, I don't know if he'll do that. Somebody else might. Yeah, uh, I hear that yeah. that's uh, something that people are trying to trying to start up. <laughs> mm, yeah, <laughs> more forcefully. Uh, but yeah, so I think it's and it's. I think it's uh, a useful. It's really important to look at that because if he does gain power, that will uh, be uh, he will join the club with uh, Hungary and Poland in sort of this this sort of leading of the the tension in, in the EU right now that exists over sort of more autocratic-leaning uh, leaders in the EU and how to mm-hmm. manage those, that, that switch. Um, you had a term the, specifically for these types of autocratic leaders. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, So what we would call... Um, so we can't really say Jansa is, is one yet, uh, it's still early, but you could say he's following the trends. But in the the Polish, uh, uh, Polish and Hungarian leaders have sort of done what's what is being termed autocratic legalism, 
Um, so it's the idea is that like a, a charismatic leader goes through what would be the democratic process mm-hmm. um, and then uses that that mandate uh, to dismantle laws that the constitutional system has um, mm-hmm. and 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 just gradually consolidating their power to allow them to remain in power indefinitely. And then the sort of end of that story would be eliminating democracy in the country um, to the point where they would not be able to change leaders peacefully anymore would be mm-hmm. sort of the ultimate conclusion of that. Um, and, and the thing is, is it's not usually are the argument for why Jensen could be a problem if he gets a second term is it usually takes a couple of, of terms. So he might not be able to mm-hmm. do it with this minority government, but over the process of a few minority governments or, or stronger governments, uh, minority between minority and majority government, coalition governments, um, he might be able to consolidate enough power um, to really head in that direction more firmly. Because mm-hmm. it's like eventually appointing new judges um, that are going to side uh, legally through some different interpretations of the law, potentially, uh, and also getting the right people in place so that you can share power in the presidency, right? Because he's also prime yeah. minister. So it's going to have this consolidation of aligning different houses and different branches of government, allowing for this kind of like slow, slow movement. Yeah. Um, but like it's it's similar like you might i think listeners might have seen when i think this is like a couple years ago now when there was all these headlines about how putin was going to be president for life how there was this like new um law passed so that he could have like extra terms in office and stuff Mm -hmm. and this has also recently happened in china as well that has removed the term limits so that uh xi jinping can also remain in office for extra time and stuff so these things happen especially once leaders are kind of there's really that kind of turning point, right? Where after the term limits are starting to come up so that these leaders who have been in power for a long time, the term limits come around. That seems like a real (laughs) uh, (laughs) inflection point is when the term limit uh, may or may not be changed um, to allow for somebody to stay in power. And then once that happens, all bets are off. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And it's also just a certain amount of like, yeah, just a gradual boiling of the pot, as they say, like, you, you know, it's, it's uh, the more the longer he is in power, without, you know, anything terrible happening, the you know, the more he can sort of gradually, gradually get away with or, or and, and even, you know, with consolidating the power, and the more used to the public used to it, the public gets the easier it is to, uh, the easier it is to get away with these sorts of things. And I think that's, and, and the easier it is for the international community to sort of accept that that's just how it works there. You know, uh, I think we certainly see that with major powers like, like Russia and China, for example. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's also like, if you look at elections, right. If you look at who's been the leader of a, of a country for a certain amount of time, not counting like, you know, Queen Elizabeth has been the leader of of Canada for the last 60 years. But um, so normally those people change pretty regularly Mm -hmm. right like over the elections but if you look at somebody like belarus like alexander lukashenko and he's been he's been president for i i think basically our entire lives (laughs) like he's been he's been president going on 30 years now since the mid 90s um so if you look at somebody like that then you can see okay this is what these types of leaders look like yeah 
Yeah, and yeah, there's definitely lots of role models out there mm-hmm. for what this, what this could be. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I think it, it, it's it's an interesting time. I think that Slovenia, if you weren't thinking about Slovenia as an election, there is a lot happening there. And mm-hmm. uh, and Ansa is a really uh, hot button figure. I think it, it, it's worth pointing out that it's not decided. Like he is in a very competitive election. Part of the reason you may have heard that Slovenia, um, I think the Czech Republic and Poland's leaders went to the Ukraine. Like part of the reason that Slovenia, uh, that Janssen went to Ukraine was to sort of try and make himself look more like a statesman uh, and and rally some support um, because there's a lot of uncertainty. Again, Slovenia would count as one of those countries that if Ukraine is allowed, to, if Russia is allowed to to have its way in Ukraine, Slovenia would feel vulnerable, and a number of its neighbors would feel vulnerable um, to what Russia might decide to do next, um, because they're in that region. So he was trying to really, I think he's trying to play on this sort of the uncertainty that exists in the region and the focus on that as an issue at the moment. Um, but so it, it it's a really it is a contested election. He's polling at like twenty five percent, I think, his party. Mm-hmm. Um, but sort of the next, all the next preceding parties are left-wing parties or center-left parties who, uh, if they can manage to pull together a, a coalition government, should be would would prevent him from becoming uh, successfully getting a minority government. Yeah, and I think like looking at just like what we've talked about, right? Like short presidencies or short short um governments in 2012 2013 i think this is like the eighth government in a row that hasn't had a full term in mm-hmm. office um it's like a lot of minority governments and all these coalitions are pretty tenuous right like we see coalition partners for both the Mar- the list of marriage charge and the slovenian democratic party and we see coalition party party or coalition members that were in both of those coalitions right the modern center mm-hmm. party the democratic party of pendrews of selenia um this really shows that there's some instability in government right and i saw some some talk that i think it was um marin Scherch in his time in office that was talking about an actual um attempt at reducing the number of parties that are mm-hmm. in parliament by increasing the threshold to get into parliament um, for parties because currently in their proportional representation method uh, the, the threshold is at four percent which is kind of typical but potentially a little bit low um, and given the given the instability of these elections over um, what seems to be a pretty significant amount of time um, do you think something like that could be reasonable in a country like Slovenia where um, it seems like I don't know maybe having more stability is good but also at the same time point then there could be this consolidation right oftentimes i think it's viewed pretty poorly um when uh politicians try to make um parliament more exclusionary (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think you'd always be worried about uh you have to be very cautious with any sort of threshold raising and what what does that mean um i i think it and especially in a system like this where it is very much towards pushing parties towards this cooperation. I don't think it is necessarily a huge problem to have parties going from, you know, as you said, they were in multiple different coalitions, but that willingness to like work together to come and form a government that will continue governing without having to go to an election is not inherently a bad thing. Um, And, and 
yeah, it, it, there is. I think there are more pressing approaches to addressing <laughs> addressing mm-hmm. the the problem in in Slovenia and that stability. Um, and I think that we're sort of geared to thinking that um, you know uh, that this these changes in leadership or or governments reforming and uh, uh, disassembling and reforming in different ways is not natural. But I think in this system, it is more designed for that to be the case. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, here in Canada, we've seen just two parties working together called tyranny. Yeah. So imagine <laughs> five. <laughs> wow, the, the anarchy. <laughs> the dictatorship of five parties yeah. working together. How would you oh even do a handshake, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Say what you want about Trudeau, but imagine if one man could shake five hands at once. <laughs> Okay, so Mm -hmm. I think that's about what we have to say about the Slovenian parliamentary election happening on April 24th, 2022. Unless you have one last word that you'd like to get in about it, Kaylee, before we find out about what's happening at the United Nations. Well, I did say it to you before we started recording, and I would like it on the record, but did you know that Jens' nickname, because he is a prolific tweeter, mm. uh, is is after uh, the famous uh, and terrible Yugoslav leader, Marshall Tito. He's called Marshall Tweeto by his uh, critics because he is uh, such a right-wing tweet tweeter. I think we'll leave it at that. So, Kaylee, why don't you tell us what's happening in the United Nations with its Secretary General? Yeah, sure. Um, I don't know if you heard. Probably the thing that's most interesting to me, I know we talked about it a lot, um, but he was talking about the latest uh, updates from the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that came out, I believe, last week or early this week. Okay. Uh, anyway, he the interesting part is, so it's it's important to note that Gutierrez uh, would sort of be considered a diplomat in, in many ways. In some ways, he's considered the world's like top diplomat. He's supposed to be quite uh, trying to bridge bridge between people and 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 so it is really notable that in his remarks uh, he made some really um strong remarks uh after the ipcc climate report came out um I'll, I'll sort of read through them i think just to sort of capture this for you but he said high emitting governments and corporations are not just turning a blind eye they're adding fuel to the flames they're choking our planet based on their vested interests and historic investments in fossil fuels when cheaper renewable solutions provide green jobs, energy security, and greater stability. He said, climate activists are sometimes depicted as dangerous radicals, but the truly dangerous radicals are countries that are increasing production of fossil fuels. Oh, wow. Yep. And he also said, investing in new fossil fuel infrastructure is moral and economic madness. Such investments will soon be stranded assets, a blot on the landscape and a blight on investment portfolios. Wow. So 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 really strong. is Antonio coming to the end of his uh, term in office here? Because these are some words of a no. man who has nothing to lose. <laughs> he is, I, and I think that I don't think that that's a wrong way of framing it. I think he does see himself as in this fight with very little to lose. That it needs mm-hmm. to be that strong. And I think it's worth saying, like a diplomat is often framed as somebody who won't say anything. But at a certain point, once the diplomat starts saying. Mm-hmm. something so harsh you know, you know you're at, at that point and and he is uh, he's not at the end of his term i think he's pretty early in his second term actually so he's mm-hmm. got a number of years to push on this um but it was really he's really trying to push back on um uh 
sort of how off track, like it, really the report was very clear that we were, we are not at all on track, even, even anywhere close for 1.5 degrees Celsius as, mm-hmm. as sort of the limits. Um, and he really, and, and he sort of wanted, he's highly, he wanted to push back on some of that optimism that was coming out of, uh, uh out of the Glasgow, uh, cop, uh, that we covered, mm-hmm. um, in, the, in the fall and just to really sort of put out a strong statement. But I think it is really interesting because I think historically, like Ban, Ban Ki-moon, the previous secretary general mm-hmm. of the UN, um, it was sort of at the time considered, uh, quite radical that he'd even he even met and walked around with climate activists and and people on that side of the uh, conversation when it was happening during his uh, tenure and now to have uh, the UN Secretary General saying such very specific very direct statements about the state of the world and um, the threat that climate change represents as basically the world's diplomat uh, is yeah. quite interesting. Cool. Yeah. That's an interesting look into the fiery language of Antonio Gutierrez. Yeah. I think we commented on this like last week or, or the last, not last week, last podcast yeah. that he, he is increasingly, I, I think, not willing to mince words about how, what needs to be done. And I think that's mm-hmm. fair. I, I think that's the tone uh, that, that a lot of people want to hear from that leadership at this point with the number of things I think we mentioned, uh, I mentioned the five alarm fire that he was sort of highlighting. Yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah. We talked about his like evocative language that he uses a lot. I think he's doing a good job. You know, I think um, it's easy for people to not think that the secretary general of the United Nations or the United Nations in general is that interesting. Mm-hmm. I think people think it's kind of like a slow body that doesn't actually do anything. Right. Like yeah. they pass things and what can people do? Right. It's like mm-hmm. we have what is like you don't have an international court that's even recognized by <laughs> the United mm-hmm. States, you know, for prosecuting war crimes. So like what like what power is it? Um, yeah. So, but, yeah. But his words seem to be, because um, I think, you know, the power that he has really is his platform, right? And he's really mm-hmm. using that um, and saying things that get headlines and that you see people being able to rally around these talking points rather than these huge documents that might come out of these bodies that are informative and important, but not necessarily eye-catching. Yeah, and I think it's it's worth thinking back to that quote where he said that sometimes ad- activists are seen as radicals by him taking on their language. He's, he's starting, he's normalizing it and putting yeah. it, moving it away from the idea that they're radicals to saying, this is actually how we should be actively talking about it. Uh, I think it's really, really interesting. Um, and just, to, yeah, the, I think that we've, we've maybe touched on it before, but in, in previous conversations we've had about the UN, but there's a reason that you know you don't you don't name and shame people unless you really mean it in 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 UN in the UN and so to actually go and make a strong declarative statement um, has it, 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 if it has if you don't do it often it must have an impact I guess is what you'd say. <laughs> what about you? Is it space news time? Are we heading to space? Or are we staying here again? <laughs> space news. We're staying here. Okay. Um, but this, okay. So the story that I'm going to share with you here is a pretty out there idea. So it's up in space, I think this guy's head. Um, so this is a paper from uh, Andrew Adamatsky. Um, and I say, normally I don't say the, the scientist names and stuff, but it's kind of interesting because 
he specifically is a professor of unconventional computing. Okay. okay? And that's going to play a role here in this paper. Um, the paper itself is called Language of Fungi Derived from Their Electrical Spiking Activity. Okay. Um, so basically in this paper, they take four species of fungi um, for our mushroom lovers out there. They're enoki, splitgill, ghost, and caterpillar mm-hmm. fungi. Um, and so as you might know, uh, mushrooms have kind of this fruiting body above the ground. And then below the ground, they have this, um, they have these uh, mycelium. So it's like all these like thread-like hairs that go all the way through the ground. Um, made up of these filamentous structures called hyphae okay so and these hyphae go all the way up into the fruiting body which is what you eat and what you think of as a mushroom and underground they have this huge structure which is really the majority of what the mushroom is Um, and so what this guy did this professor of unconventional computing took these electrodes and put them inside of the mycelium of the Mm -hmm. mushrooms and just saw what kind of electrical activity was down there and what they found were these pulses and these oscillations in this electrical potential. Um, and from there, they saw that these pulses happen not randomly, but there's some structure to them and also some of these repeated patterns within these electrical signals. Now, detractors of the work have said that it might be, you know, just the hyphae going and like sensing, you know, some difference in water or difference in nutrients or whatever and you just get some electrical signal and it could be you know pulses because it's growing more when there's more nutrients and whatnot and that 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 may be okay but it's really interesting because they took these electrical signals and then he did because he's this unconventional computing guy he did all this like um, linguistic analysis with computers on the spiking patterns in the electrical signals that he's seeing and basically derived this um, lexicon <laughs> that these different mushrooms use. And it's like super weird. And he compared it to um, English languages or human languages as well, right? And so like the average word length um, that these different mushrooms were using varied between like four and eight, but kind of averaged around like 5.9 or something, which human languages like english averages 4.8 and russian averages six is what he what he showed in the paper through the same um, analysis and the mushrooms speak about the same length words and also they have about 50 words that they use what you know words which is just pulse like patterns of electrical pulses and 50 words approximately total ranging and then the, the more common words are about 15 to 20 of those words are really commonly used um and maybe they're not talking to each other but they the interesting thing i think is that they are sending these repeating patterns electrically through their mycelium (laughs) okay so (laughs) this is this is interesting weird computing maybe even uh Yeah, certainly unconventional. Uh, So does he think that, like, potentially he could speak to the fungi then, in theory? Um, He really tries to emphasize that this is, like, very preliminary. He's like, 
in in the end of paper itself it says like we've lived with cats and dogs for centuries and we don't understand their language so don't expect us to understand <laughs> mushrooms <laughs> but uh it seems like he's already like doing um like follow-up studies on this um and he has another paper out uh i guess a paper from february this paper just came out two days ago as time mm-hmm. of recording this um and he has a mycelium composites discern weights via patterns of electrical activity so he's like got these he's looking at mushrooms man and he's looking at the electrical signals and seeing how they see the world dude. <laughs> wow i mean i guess yeah mushrooms can make you see the world differently <laughs> yeah okay and one last thing about this that's kind of yeah. interesting um is that the journal that he published this in is called Royal Society Open yeah. Science. So the Royal Society is like the Natural Sciences Society of the United Kingdom. Um, and this journal Open Science is just like, as long as the study is fundamentally sound, it gets published and the impact of it mm-hmm. doesn't matter. Um, but also it's so open access that they actually publish the reviews, the peer review of the other scientists who looked at the oh. paper. So you see what these other scientists thought about it. And something like this is a super cool way for non-scientists to see what the scientific method really is, right? And like, what does a peer-reviewed paper Mm -hmm. mean? Um, And some of like the funny kind of quirks of (laughs) peer review. Um, And there's just, I I was looking through the peer review because what else are you going to do on a Friday night? (laughs) And this was that um, in the peer review, one of the, one of the reviewers said, and I I apologize that I'm going to read this out because it's a paragraph from a peer review document, which is kind of boring. Um, But this reviewer says, I invite the author to at least mention the possibilities of interpreting the electrical signals of fungi as a language by using two alternative approaches. Um, The first approach is put forward in some other paper. The authors use a proper integration of the time traces. The second one is based on the theory of fuzzy sets. And then he goes on to say why those are two good Mm -hmm. methods. And now... Normally, when you're lo- when you're replying to peer review, if they ask for something like this, you're like, "Yeah, I guess I could compare it to that just to make them happy." I'll include it, right? Like it adds to the paper, it increases the discussion a little bit. The very last two sentences of this paper <laughs> <laughs> address this comment with, "And last but not least, there may be alternative interpretations of the spiking electrical activity as language. For example, one can adopt the techniques of signals inter- integration over time trace, <laughs> as has been t- done in experiments referenced in the paper. Another option could be to characterize each peak by determining its fuzzy entropy by the algorithm presented in the second paper that the reviewer suggested. <laughs> cool. So he was super into it. He really enjoyed the feedback. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like the okay fine the very last two sentences and i think this is like a really cool look into i really encourage people to like we'll link the paper um in the show notes and in the newsletter um that you can click on the review history button and it actually shows like when people say like what is a peer-reviewed mm-hmm. like publication yeah. or whatever it just means that people write this stuff and then you got to answer yeah. them and if they say like it's not like as like deep and technical and amazing as you think it is it's like two other people read it and say hey what if you talk about my two pet theories and then you're like fine the last two sentences (laughs) (laughs) it can really be like that petty at some times you know (laughs) yeah that's the way it goes sometimes (laughs) yeah uh but yeah so so out of curiosity before before i know you don't want us to go too much longer but are people like into this or are people like this guy's weird what the hell is he doing 
Um, I mean, do people think that mushrooms talk to each other? I think that claim requires a you know the mm. more extraordinary the claim, the more extraordinary yeah. the evidence is tip is typically required, right? This paper. All that he's saying, right, is he's saying, hey, I saw or I found these yeah. repeating patterns in electrical signals. And then he says in the paper, let's assume mm-hmm. it's language and now let's model it as if it's language and let's see what we can find. Mm-hmm. Assuming that he's not saying it's language and I have yeah. I have the proof. He's saying, wouldn't it be cool to look at it and as see. language and then see what we can see? And other people say, let's see if we can look at it as you know, growth patterns and changing in nutrient concentrations. And let's see that. And you can have these two different theories and they model different things. One is completely signal processing and the other is more physiological in nature, right? And like, they'll both provide information about the mushrooms. We now have a way better catalog of electrical signals inside mycelium than Mm -hmm. we had before. And now we also have this kind of quirky and interesting (laughs) interpretation (laughs) of those signals as language. Um, Why, you know, there's really no reason to believe that the language expressed by mushrooms should have any relation in word length, quote unquote, as Mm -hmm. human language. But it turns out it does. Does that matter? Who knows? But now we know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and we can look into it further. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting. Yeah, I've definitely I've encountered some interesting stuff about system like communication between plants and systems. Interesting interpretation of as a language, I guess, or or as how we conceptualize mm-hmm. language. All right. Yeah. Um, so that is language of fungi derived from their electrical spiking activity. And this was probably about politics, talking about Slovenia, and a quick recap of Costa Rica. If you want to see more from us or reach out, find us on Twitter at ProbPolitics, same on Instagram, or email us at probablypolitics at gmail.com and sign up for our newsletter. Thanks so much for listening. We love you. Love you all.